We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Modrovix. Joining me today is Doomberg, the head writer for the Doomberg team and Doomberg Substack. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? Tom, I'm doing great. How are you, sir? I'm excellent. It's great to speak with you again. And I wanted to speak with you today on something that is not necessarily the the main focus of the show, but I think is a, an extremely important piece to understanding, let's say, where the economy is headed, where the world is headed as a whole. And that is the idea of peak cheap oil. You know, you wrote a piece right before Christmas entitled Peak Cheap Oil is a Myth, in which you lay out the case for how you see oil production going forward. I think an interesting place to start there is to take the example of the book Twilight in the Desert, as it forecasted exhaustion of the Saudi Arabian oil fields and predicted that the price of oil would average more than $200 a barrel in 2010. So, is this really another case of a really a, a misinterpretation of the data through this lens of really, really trying to steer the world in a different direction? Yeah, it's a great question. And thanks for, for having me on. It's a great pleasure to be on your show. Always, you're a true professional and, um, and I've always um, left our conversations wanting more. And so hopefully this, or I'm sure this would be the same. Um, Matt Simmons' book was published um, with much fanfare in the mid uh, 2000s. And as you said, he um, did sort of a bottom up analysis of various data in the Saudi oil topic and, and, and the fields of Saudi Arabia and came to the conclusion, um, which is very common, that um, things were about to fall off a cliff and famously made a, a bet in that regard. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2010 and didn't live long enough to see um, the results of things, but his estate did pay off that bet, it must be said, uh, to their credit. Um, for as long as there has been oil, um, there have been people concerned about running out of it. And it's an understandable concern because oil is so important and energy is so important. Energy is life. And so to the extent that oil is a major contributor to our primary energy needs, and it certainly is, the future of oil is of paramount importance. And it's it's tempting to look at the current state of affairs and apply a sort of linear forward-looking analysis to things. The challenge and the fallacy of almost all of those analyses is they radically underestimate the technological development that is occurring in the energy sector. They assume today's political constraints to the extraction of more energy would persist at the first sign of such an emergency. And frankly, um, if you've made such predictions, uh, you sort of painted yourself into the corner as you wait for them to occur. And so we kicked up a bit of a hornet's nest with that piece. And I must say, it was a surprise to us, the, 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 um, the, the vulgar nature of some of the attacks against us for writing what we believe to be true and, and doing our best to support our written words with factual data. Um, the, the, the concept that the world would just sit around and shrug its shoulders in the face of a crisis, uh, which is what the peak cheap oil proponents are all about, because if it wasn't a catastrophic crisis, there'd be no reason to write about it and worry about it. Um, our argument is 
uh, the world would not shrug its shoulders. And in fact, we're working on a piece that will probably publish concurrent with your publication of this podcast called, uh, temporarily called at least, um, Atlas Won't Shrug. Uh, we will respond in kind. And there's a variety of ways that we would respond should the unlikely event that our ability to extract ever more primary energy, even in the form of oil itself, were to ever be significantly curtailed. There's things we would do, and we would set about the task of doing them rather quickly and rather efficiently. So that's the big picture. I'm happy to take it in any direction that you'd like to go. Absolutely. And, and we'll get to you know, some specific questions around what directions that the world would head. But maybe let's start by defining some terms here. And I know that this was, you know, part of a, you know, maybe the controversial part of the piece, which is how you define oil and or the distillates that we need in order to get to that end product. So why don't we start there? To understand the definition of oil, the first thing you have to do is understand what it is that we do with it. Mm -hmm. And by and large, with the exception of chemicals, petrochemicals, um, plastics, and you know, surfactants and lubricants and so on. The vast majority of what comes out of a barrel of oil gets burned somewhere in a machine. And that machine does work. And the people who buy the refined products of oil aren't actually buying the specific molecules. They're buying the embedded energy and the potential for work that that embedded energy represents. And so in order to understand what oil is, uh, at least as it's defined today, you have to understand who buys physical oil, who buys crude oil. And by and large, with some exceptions, of course, some countries store it and some traders uh, warehouse it for their own um, arbitrage opportunities. But in the end, the entity that buys oil is a refinery. Mm -hmm. And what goes into a refinery is not specced. It is not necessarily tight. Um, any hydrocarbons that a refiner could get its hands on um, might be suitable for the task of creating specific products, diesel, jet fuel, gasoline, um, that go into engines that have been designed to burn those fuels. Um, and so in our view, any hydrocarbon that finds its way into a refinery or the refinery network um, is oil. And what happens over time is chemists who are brilliant in this regard find clever ways to take varying grades of crude and produce the products that are specified, which is what comes out of a refinery. We could get back to that later because one of the things we would do is change the engines mm -hmm. if we ever ran out of oil. But assuming we have the engines we have today, refiners, the chemists that work there, do a very good job of taking a mix of crude grades and optimizing across cost, efficiency, productivity, and so on. And over time, um, the price of crude, the varying grades of crude, will converge to the inherent energy content embedded within that crude. So why is one crude different than another? And why is one crude priced differently than another? Well, crudes are different than each other. And there's probably 100 commercial grades of crude in the world, um, far more complex than the simple benchmarks like WTI or Brent would, uh, would represent. What distinguishes the crude is the the, the molecular weight of the of the uh, of the composition of molecules that come out of the ground. You know how much sulfur is there, the various components, light, heavy, uh, and and so on. Um, what makes the varying various crudes expensive or cheap is all about whether refineries can process them or not. So if every refinery in the world 
can process a certain grade of crude, then that crude is necessarily cheap. Mm -hmm. And if only a few refineries can process a crude, say because it has a lot of sulfur and refiners have not yet invested in hydrotreating capacity or pick your favorite chemical explanation, then by definition, that crude is cheap. Um, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's cheap. The, the one that everyone can refine is expensive. The one that only a few can refine is cheap. And over time, uh, enough refineries will make those investments to, to take advantage of that molecular arbitrage, and they will be able to process the temporarily cheap crudes and bring, them, uh, bring the demand up to, to close that arbitrage. And so whenever you have a spread in the cost of crude, refiners make their living on that spread. And it's a hyper-competitive market filled with brilliant chemists and chemical engineers, and this is what they do. And we say, I think it's difficult to argue. Now, look, we should say most of the people who are critical of our analysis have a, ge a geology background, and we have a chemistry background. And so we look at this as chemists. And uh, over time, we know that if um, lighter and lighter hydrocarbons are flowing out of the U.S. in record volumes, refineries will figure out ways to convert those molecules into jet fuel, diesel, and gasoline. Mm -hmm. You can take small molecules and make them longer. You could take long molecules and make them shorter. You could take sulfur-rich materials and get the sulfur out of it. You can do whatever you want with enough time and money. And if the spreads grow big enough, time and money will be spent, and those spreads will converge. Arbitrage is the ultimate reality of the energy business, and investors are perennially on the lookout for arbitrage opportunities that will have to close. Mm -hmm. And so over time, the definition of oil expands and our preferred definition is any hydrocarbon that finds its way into a refinery. And when you have that as your definition, all manner of options suddenly become apparent if and when we were to truly confront peat cheap oil. So just to kind of dig down into that a little bit more, if you had, let's say, what the, what the Permian produces, which is a lighter you know, condensate liquid, if I'm not mistaken, can you end up making a heavy lubricant type oil out of that or a diesel fuel type product at the end of the day that ends up being heavier, as you were saying, you know, stringing more molecules together, despite the, the raw product's weight that was lighter in the beginning? Sure. Taken to the extreme, you could make syngas out of every hydrocarbon. And then you can make diesel and jet fuel from syngas. This is known. This is what the Nazis did in World War II. This is what South Africa did because of apartheid. This is what happens at the Pearl Gas Liquids Plant that we talked about um, uh, in Qatar. Uh, there they use natural gas to make syngas because that's what Qatar has. They have a ton of natural gas. You can take any hydrocarbon to make syngas. And so, yes, there is a, a, an expense to that. We wouldn't do it at scale with, without the need to do so. And we wouldn't have to do it at too much of a scale should we confront peat cheap oil. Because the thing is, the inelasticity of commodities is such that we want to grow 2% a year forever. Mm -hmm. And if you know cheap oil, uh, as envisioned by the proponents of the thesis, some of whom I have a great deal of respect for, it should be said, and I don't mind disagreeing with polite people and understanding uh, the, the, the reasons why we might disagree. Um, what those folks fail to understand is um, small deviations from that 2% a year growth will cause crises. This is why the energy sector is so cyclical in the first place. But then it doesn't take much to swing from, from, uh, uh, from shortage to glut. It's 1% or 2% of energy, maybe 3% of energy. And so you wouldn't have to take much of the light hydrocarbon molecules coming out of the Permian uh, 
um, which is a combination of uh, light, sweet crude, and NGLs, natural gas liquids, and natural gas itself, and just build giant um, fisher tropes plants. And we could, but yes, chemists can turn any molecule into any other molecule given enough time and money. They will only do the minimum they'd have to do to keep us on that 2% growth curve. The world will grow fossil fuel energy at 2% a year forever, effectively, for decades, for uh, forever being the, the, the lifespan of anybody listening to this podcast. So yes, it's possible. Would you choose to do it? No. If you had to do it with oil at $250 a barrel, yes, because it'd be very profitable to do. The break-even price of these capital-intense processes, like syngas and fisher tropes, is probably $40 to $50 a barrel in today's uh, environment. It, it would take time to build, but believe me, in the face of a crisis, we can move quick. And we've shown that over and over and over again. Um, and at $250 oil, all manner of technological inventions would get accelerated, and things we don't even can't even conceive of today might will, will come to the market very quickly. The profit motivations of arbitrage are exceptionally powerful. Look, let's just take two examples. Um, Matt Simmons looked like he might be right as we were heading into the global financial crisis because oil shot up famously to, I think, $147 a barrel. Within, within a year, it had dropped to 30 bucks a barrel. It had dropped like 80%. Um, natural gas in uh, Europe spiked to $100 per million BTU, the equivalent of, of $600 a barrel oil. It's, a, it's truly a stunning price. Uh, within eight months, it had collapsed you know, 85%. Like the market responds. Now, look, crises are hard. They're terrible. They destroy economies. All those things are true, and none of them represent peak cheap oil. What would happen in an emergency is we would take from the cupboard a suite of options to meet the profit motive of temporarily high energy prices. And let me just walk through um, a few of those options, and then we can perhaps discuss each one in detail. The very first thing we would do, so think of this as kind of a cost curve. You know, everybody's familiar with a cost curve in the mining sector, as in the gold industry or uranium industry. Like, what does it cost to produce a certain amount of ore at various mines? And you look at the price today and you see which miners are profitable and which ones aren't. And then you, you can look forward and say, well, the price of uranium, once it gets above $80 a pound, lots of people are in the money and you can expect to see a supply response. That's just an example of a cost curve. So what is the peak oil cost curve? The very first wedge, and it's a very wide one, is we would eliminate political constraints to exploitation of conventional reserves. We have an enormous amount of conventional reserves that for political reasons, we have arbitrarily decided are off limits. For example, drilling off the coast of Florida. They don't want to do it because of tourism. Drilling anywhere in California. Drilling off the coast of California. Drilling in Alaska. We would fix the problems in Venezuela. I can tell you that Venezuela should be producing six, seven million barrels a day easily, and they're producing what? One and change. Mm -hmm. That wedge is there. There's no technology needed. It's political. Um, there would be a response. OPEC would pump. You know, uh, believe me, they, they don't have discipline. Uh, if oil gets above 150 again, you're going to see every conventional field um, turn back on to the extent that it can. You will see political revolution. Look, do you think Joe Biden and Gavin Newsom are going to be able to stop the political riots that would occur at $200 a barrel oil? Of course not. And in fact, California would be amongst the first states to be wiped away politically because it has the stupidest policies. Right? Well, that they would just, go ahead. Sorry, just to interrupt. It serves incentively, you know, to make them reverse those policies because of 
the unhappy nature of their constituents at those prices, right? And I mean, exactly. just even stepping back from worrying about, you know, political upheaval, the reason they drained the SPR was to try to curb inflation just so they can, you know, have this piece on their resume that shows, hey, we did something about this, right? That, that wasn't that- in response to people, you know, rioting in the streets with pitchforks. Yeah, well, it's, that proves two things, how quickly we would move and how little we would have to do to have an impact. Biden released one million barrels a day. That was the top of the market. The U.S. has continued to produce oil and natural gas. We're in a glut of natural gas, which is something we called uh, in November of last year. Mm-hmm. The amount we would need to do compared to the size of the options we have available to us is, is de minimis. And we would do it. I'm telling you. We would be drilling in California. So the first political, you know, the first wedge is, is removing um, voluntary political constraints because they would suddenly become very difficult to support. The second wedge we would do is we would proliferate the technology perfected in the shale patch in the U.S. Um, to other parts of the U.S. and to around the world. There's a giant shale um, deposit um, in California, Monterey. It, it has become a hyper-political football. Many, many believe that it could be the biggest in the U.S. Uh, hard to imagine that because the Permian is such a powerhouse, but we don't know because we're not really looking and nobody's investing there. Mm-hmm. And it has become political to minimize uh, the size of that resource in order to diminish any excitement about potentially developing it. And so I would say um, there's many tricks in the bag in U.S. shale that would be played in such circumstances. And then there's other massive shale deposits all over the world, Argentina, Russia, um, China, the Middle East. All of these are technically challenging, and some of them look like they might not be able to be developed given today's technology. But once again, you have to you have to read through to what's coming. You have to imagine what the impact of AI will be on our ability to understand these resources and to uh, perfect the drilling and to take cost out of it. Like the wizardry of the brilliant scientists and engineers and technicians and field workers that do the dizzying array of work that make modern life possible is always underestimated. Mm-hmm. And it is it's the worst short in the history of the markets. Like they will deliver. Um, and, th- and so, you know, uh, and then the third thing we would do beyond removing politics and um, spreading shale technology is we would tap into natural gas and work the magic of syngas and fisher tropes. We have an enormous amount of natural gas. Very few people would argue that the amount of natural gas that we have readily available is enormous and would be tapped into. And we wrote a piece called putting a ceiling on the equilibrium price of oil, because in the long run, it might smash through that. There'd be a temporary crisis. Um, We would eventually build out enough of those plants to to fill the gap. And then the fourth thing we would do, um, and the last that I'll bring up here, is we would change the engines. So we, we would run our cars on compressed natural gas, which we can do. There's no technology needed for that. Um, we would run our long haul trucks on compressed natural gas. We would take advantage of natural gas um, uh, directly uh, instead of trying to make it sort of uh, uh, converting it molecularly into oil. We would just change our engines so that we would do with natural gas what we currently choose to do with oil. And so all of these things taken in aggregate swamp, and I mean swamp, any potential shortage that might arise 
if these techno-pessimistic forward-looking projections using old technology and old assumptions ever do materialize, which I don't think they will. So even in the event that they are right, they're still wrong because we just have a, 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 an ocean of hydrocarbons um, and a, a capability to change our engines. Like again, if, if, if we use natural gas and turn it into jet fuel and diesel, then we are taking all of that investment and putting it up front. We could just ask consumers to change that investment. You know, buy a new car, but it has a CNG engine in it. Retrofit. <laughs> the burning of gasoline and burning of natural gas aren't all that different. Um, there'd be some changes that would be needed, but the cost of those changes would pale in comparison to just sitting around looking at $250 oil and shrugging our shoulders and imagining that nothing's, nothing is going to change. Like this is this is the true impossible to refute argument in our view. And then the final point I would make is the 50 year chart of the inflation adjusted price of oil shows that oil today is, is in the bottom third of where it has ever been. Um, it's as cheap today, adjusted for inflation, as it was when Reagan was elected. Um, the same category of people who believe that peak cheap oil is real, there's probably a great overlap in that population who believes that government inflation numbers are made up and they are uh, published to the downside of reality. Well, if that's true, then the inflation adjusted curve um, that we showed is actually even more proof that peak cheap oil is a myth because oil is even cheaper if you use what you believe to be the true uh, number for inflation. Mm -hmm which is why we priced in the original piece, the price of oil in ounces of gold. And it's just, it's dirt cheap. There's nothing about the market price of oil. And the market is pretty good at sniffing out these things that indicates we have any trouble on the horizon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to remember. And as you said earlier, you know, oil is life, right? There is an inherent need to keep this ultimate resource available and relatively cheap to be able to keep the world functioning. And faced with the challenge to that, we have always overcome it. Look, in, in the piece that we're publishing, we start with all of the crises and wars and financial panics that have happened since the 1970s, starting with Nixon taking the U.S. off the gold standard. You have the war in the Middle East and the subsequent uh, OPEC oil embargoes of the of the early 70s. You have the overthrow of the Shah of Iran. You have the war between Iran and Iraq that lasted until 1988. You have the first Gulf War. You have the collapse of uh, you know, the, the Asian currency crisis and the, the ruble default and the collapse of long-term capital management. And then you have the 9-11 attacks and you have uh, the war in Afghanistan and you have a second go at Saddam Hussein and you have the, the never-ending war on terror and the overthrow of um, Libyans, Libya's government and, and the chaos we've uh, brought to, to Syria and so on. And then you have, you know, um, uh, the, uh, the series of crises that we've had um, since then, uh, including the current war between Ukraine and Russia and, and the, um, the, the, the kinetic conflict in the Middle East, which looks like it might spread to a direct confrontation between Iran and, and the U.S. If you take all of that legitimate disruptive crises, and then you look at the 50-year chart, of global primary energy consumption as reported in the annual statistical review of world energy, which used to be published by BP. Um, it's a straight line up. It's a gently oscillating sine wave with 
an upward slope of 2% a year. It's almost as if it doesn't matter what happens in the world. And there's a reason why this is. Um, and this is the point we're going to be making in this piece. Everybody misunderstands, not everybody, the vast majority of economists do not understand the important role that energy plays in our economy. They view energy as an input into economic activity. Energy is the economy. Mm -hmm. We have organized ourselves economically and politically to extract and harness energy at that growth rate, and we will do so for as long as we can. And in fact, because energy is life, because your standard of living is defined by how much energy you get to harness, and because every human everywhere wants a higher standard of living, energy is the economy. We orient our economy around energy, not the other way around. People get it backwards. And so to say that peak, peak cheap oil is A, real, B, happening soon, and C, not something we would uh, respond to, uh, I think is, is, is a very dubious intellectual position to hold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really hard to argue with the point as you put it there. But I want to get back to something that you and I have actually spoken about before around nuclear energy. Is much of this narrative in your view based around the thinking and analysis put forward by, let's say, the modern environmental movement as possibly a spur to really scare and steer the world towards renewables? Yeah, I mean, the opposition to nuclear is um, uh, on its face evidence that um, environmentalists who claim to be concerned about carbon emissions are basically lying to you. Mm -hmm. um, and nuclear is one other example uh, of things we can do that we would do um, in short order should peak cheap oil uh, materialize. So for example, all around the world and including the US, natural gas is burned to produce electricity. We just discussed how natural gas could be burned in a car. Mm -hmm. It can be burned uh, in a long haul truck. It could be burned in your home to produce heat. And, and so we could build nuclear power plants to produce electricity and free up incremental supplies of oil and natural gas that are currently being burned to produce electricity and redirect those flows to all the things we just talked about, which we would do. That uh, Nuclear is super expensive today for political reasons. Mm -hmm. If France could build dozens of gigawatts of nuclear energy 50 years ago in record time, if Canada could do the same, surely we can do, the, do it again if we wiped away all of the political nonsense that is constraining our ability to do that. Um, China is proof of how quickly you can build out massive nuclear, and they're doing it. And so nuclear is another wedge that we would use in the cost curve of responses to any apparent crisis of production of oil, traditional oil. Mm -hmm. um, so we would use coal. We have an enormous amount of coal. We would go back to burning coal. We could take coal, make syngas, and make fissiotropes uh, catalysts that would convert that syngas into all the all of the um, all of the fuels that our current engines are designed to burn. We would do those things. We and, wouldn't just sit around and do nothing. And you know, as a counterpoint to going to these renewables, we've burnt more coal in the last year than ever before, right? And we will burn more coal forever. Thus, I mean, the human endeavor requires an ever-growing amount of primary energy, and so it shall be. That is our main point. Now, that doesn't mean that crises um, won't come and go and that you might even be able to predict them and you might be able to make money off them. But none of those crises, in our view, would amount to peak cheap oil. They would just be the next energy crisis that humanity would very rapidly overcome. Mm -hmm. So the main argument 
and the one that um, Adam Rosenzweig, to his everlasting credit, made in a very polite and enjoyable discussion that the two of us had on Adam Taggart's wonderful new podcast. Um, the main argument is that U.S. shale is going to roll over. And and our counter to that, if it does, that's not peak cheap oil. It might be catastrophic. It might cause a recession. It's not going to be the end of the world. We would find a way. We would take the four main wedges, politics, proliferating shale technology, using natural gas to make fuels, and then using natural gas directly. And then maybe even the fifth, doing things like nuclear power, reverting back to coal would be the sixth. We would do those things. Mm -hmm. The world showed during the European energy crisis that um, the harder the elastic band gets stretched, the quicker it snaps back. Yeah, again, the cure for high prices is high prices, right? Always. Um, and Always. looking out over this horizon, it's interesting to try to extrapolate the fact that we wouldn't respond to it in, you know, exactly as you say, in any manner of ways that human ingenuity can. But I want to dig into a little bit of the, you know, just explaining this in a little bit of a simpler way for people that might not totally understand this yet. So is it that we have really exhausted the conventional and relatively cheap and easy to extract oil? And are we now faced with extracting it from much deeper or more difficult fields? Um, neither. We have chosen to artificially put off limits, very easy to access and relatively cheap conventional resources. And through the power of largely American ingenuity, we have discovered how to drill ever more complex um, uh, resources and convert them into reserves. Um, because what was mad, what was impossible 10 years ago, what would look like magic is now commonplace today. And we see this back to our, our, a point I made earlier. We always underestimate the technical power of these commodity players. We assume that technology means NVIDIA and Facebook and Google and Amazon. And there's really brilliant people working in those companies. And they do pretty amazing things. The same level of motivation and brilliance and hard work is occurring in the commodity sector. Uh, I, I lived it for two decades. I, I used to be in what I jokingly said, I used to be in the genius business. I would hire, develop, and and motivate um, armies of PhDs working on some of the hardest problems in the world. I, I know the caliber of people in the industry. They get no credit. Their stocks are assigned low multiples, which makes it easy for people who don't appreciate the, the, the giant organized brain that is the energy sector. Uh, they, they don't need to take, they can take it for granted because they do their jobs too well. And we said, and we said in a piece, heaven forbid they ever go on strike. It, it wouldn't take long for us to realize who has the power here uh, in our society. And I can assure you, um, whether or not your packages get delivered in a day is not nearly as important as whether or not the lights come on. Uh, so we, we would find that out in short order. Absolutely. And I've, I've experienced some of that, you know, in the example you gave earlier of South Africa late last year, being there. And all of a sudden, the lights go off in a business, and the business basically grinds to right, a complete so halt. halt. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible the amount that we take for granted in the West here. Yeah, and the idea that we wouldn't be able to respond to that is asinine, really. Yes, that's a, that's a good word for it. So, what about global reserves? Do they keep growing year over year as oil companies keep exploring? It's a fascinating chart. Um, 
we actually produced this in one of our pro tier talks and I'll share it with you um, here. We took a look at 100 years of US production data and then the US DOE's estimate of the country's reserves. So whatever we produced in 2000, and then at the end of 2000, what did we say our reserves were? And with an R squared of 0.9, our reserves are always 11 times last year's production. If production is going down, we minimize the future reserves that we have. And if production is going up, we expand the future reserves that we have. But the line is so straight. It proves that, in fact, reserves are an accounting term. And people who aren't familiar with the industry might easily get that confused. The, the accounting definition of reserves, which is different from resource, is really important, is often abused by small-time players in the commodity sector to try to talk up the value of their stock so they can issue equity, so they can do their exploring and so on. And so because of that, mm -hmm. the SEC has pretty firm rules on what your definition of a reserve is. And when you apply those rules with an appropriate conservativity, it basically means our estimated reserves are meaningless. The only constraint to our ability to produce oil is in between the years of our global leaders. It's the brain power and ingenuity that we choose to unleash in the sector. Mm -hmm. um, we have, as we said in the social preview for the original piece, P cheap oil is a myth, uh, we have more than enough for more than long enough. So are the... Are these shale sources as well very misunderstood by many analysts? Um, I would say that many analysts understand it well enough. Um, they view the political constraints to extracting shale as probably more permanent than we do, especially in the hypothetical situation of peachy oil. But I think everybody knows. And look, uh, Gehring and Rosenzweig, the same firm that um, Adam Rosenzweig works at, that we had that friendly debate with on Taggart's show. Um, put out a study. Uh, I haven't seen it, but he referred to it in in the uh, in the debate that we had, and and it brings true to me that there's you know most of the best shale is in the U.S., but that's based on backward-looking technology that, and we're allowed to look. Mm -hmm. um, there's a wonderful deposit in Argentina that we profiled in a piece. Um, Russia has an enormous deposit um, of shale. China has a huge deposit of shale. Um, uh, again, don't think for a second. We haven't written this piece yet. It's on the list that the Chinese aren't super motivated to steal all their technology and, and, and apply it domestically. Look, they have two major weaknesses when they ponder their geopolitical situation. That's semiconductor chips and the fact that they import a ton of energy. Mm -hmm. um, they are working feverishly to close both of those weaknesses, I can assure you. And when the Chinese Communist Party puts its full weight behind an effort, it usually succeeds. We When we were commenting on Peter Zihan's sort of um, predictions that Russian oil and gas would fall apart once the West pulled out, which is, I think, proven to have been a tad bit alarmist. Um, we were mentioning that China and India have armies of petroleum engineers um, and the willingness to steal Western technology. You can rest assured, nothing happening in the shale patch today in the US isn't being observed directly by the Chinese. You should just you'd be naive to assume otherwise. Um, they have an entire university dedicated to developing petroleum engineers. And last we checked, there were some 15,000 people enrolled in it. The U.S., by contrast, produced a grand total of 600 petroleum engineers across all its universities last year. We are naive if we think that we hold some special technical lead in the innovation race, that the Chinese 
and the Indians and the Russians can't easily uh, catch up to. Um, and so, um, again, the second of the four wedges, proliferating shale technology around the world would happen and would happen rather quickly. So is that really the only hurdle to China being more you know, energy independent is the development of their technological ability to tap into those shale deposits that they have? Yeah, I, I would say, given the size of those deposits, yeah. And don't look, China does other things as well. It cuts deals with other oil producers and um, and is very shrewd about the way in which it occupies um, certain choke points. So, for example, even though China imports an enormous amount of oil, they export a significant amount of refined products. They have way more refining capacity than their domestic economy can use. Why? Because that's the, the standard Chinese playbook. If we don't have the material itself, we insert ourselves in a critical part of the supply chain so that other countries need us to get that oil. Um, and that's that's a political choice. It also abates their risk because, yes, they have to get dollars to buy oil, but they get dollars back when they sell diesel and jet fuel and gasoline, which they do on the open market in size. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... The Chinese are not stupid. You should never assume that your enemy is, is, is unintelligent. And they have a massive amount of shale. And they have all the motivation to pursue it. Today, they're challenged with it. They have not been able to get their domestic production of oil meaningfully higher than 4 million barrels a day. And so people point at that and say, it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. I would say that's, that's, that's a risky bet. That's a very generous way to put that, Doomberg. <laughs> Trying to stay polite. That's fair. Which I, I appreciate as well. Doomberg, how about Russia? You know, we, we just spoke about China, but how about Russia's reserves and the way that they actually have exploited them thus far? You know, you hear that they have an immense gas field for sure. But what is the major hurdle there? Is it the weather at this point? No, it's it's Vladimir Putin, I would say. Um, look, I mean, um, we have been loud in our critique of Western sanctions because we knew they would backfire. And I think the data has more than vindicated our position, which we took early on when it was not popular to do so shortly after he invaded Ukraine. I think Putin is a complex man. I think it was a catastrophic mistake on his part to go to war. I think we in the West have done a a huge disservice to the world by not trying a little harder to avoid war. I think there were things we could have done that could have um, avoided the situation. We, we're not geopolitical experts, but it seems as though um, we were pushing NATO pretty aggressively. And um, we had to know that there would be a response. Now, does that justify what Putin has done? Absolutely not. I'm just trying to explain the situation. If Vladimir Putin and the West had figured out a way to avoid war. Um, the weather is is not the constraint. They have, I mean, Russia is an energy juggernaut. Um, what's keeping Russian energy reserves in the ground is politics. And again, another example of what could be easily wiped away in the face of a true crisis. They have enormous reserves, enormous. And frankly, the technical know-how to keep them running even in the face of Western sanctions. Imagine a world where peace breaks out in Ukraine. It's difficult to imagine today, but it's possible. Like, you know, we bombed Japan with nuclear weapons and we obliterated Germany in partnership with the Russians. 
And now Germany and Japan are allies of the U.S. Like these things change. Like leaders come and go, wars um, pop up and then and then peter themselves out. Like we won't be at war with Russia forever. Mm-hmm. Putin won't be in charge of Russia forever. Um, technology is not constraining to the development of Russia's massive reserves. Um, and so in our view, they will be developed. You know, staying with this, looking at the geopolitical picture at this point, I had a discussion last week about the Strait of Hormuz and the Trump card that Iran could really only pull on the rest of the world once if they decided to close the Strait, removing a meaningful percentage of oil coming to the market. So do possibilities like this fall under the category of short-term price drivers, long-term nothing burgers? Yeah, I would say. Uh, Look, that would be a serious event. It'd be a serious escalation. I enjoyed that podcast, by the way. Um, But it would not, 10 years from now, will we be producing more or less oil? Whether or not that happens won't impact that question. Mm -hmm. Uh, We will be producing more oil. We will be producing more primary energy. We find ever more creative ways to bring that oil to market. We would probably invade Iran <laughs> and the world would, would support it because suddenly oil goes to $300. Mm-hmm. Uh, an awful lot of countries are in, in a big time world of hurt and would uh, work collectively to make sure this, this gets corrected, which is what we were highlighting in this piece. Look, when Saddam Hussein rolled into Kuwait, within six months, a million troops from dozens of countries were in the area to kick him out. Like we've done this before. That was 30 years ago. We, we, this now look, if we have a thermonuclear war, sure. The demand for primary energy will go down because there'd be a lot less people. Um, let's hope that doesn't happen, but conventionally, as long as Russia, Ukraine doesn't escalate to a nuclear war, as long as China and the U S figure out a way to solve the Taiwan issue relatively peacefully, um, we'll be fine. And by the way, uh, this sort of an ultimate Pascal's wager, you know, like Jim Cramer for all the crap he gets he used to said something really remarkable on TV, which stuck with me because it's a really profound point. Anytime we'd have a scare about nuclear war and stocks would go down, he'd buy the, he'd buy the dip because if I'm wrong, who cares? And if I'm not wrong, I'm still alive and I'm wealthier. And so, you know, you can't really have global catastrophe of thermonuclear war as a base case. And, and, and if it is your base case, then your investment portfolio is the least of your concerns. Mm-hmm. So how about countries that are producing oil that is far removed from these conflict zones? Does that make production from countries like Brazil more valuable because it has resources that are much removed from the dangers of the current conflicts in the world from both a geographic standpoint and a shipping standpoint? Yeah, I, I, look, we wrote an entire piece on what the Western Hemisphere could do if it got its act together. Um, it would be a, a really amazing place. The piece was called, um, I believe it was called The New World's Oil. And I think we published it just before um, the new year. But if you just look up and down Canada, the US, Mexico, Venezuela, uh, Guyana now, much to everybody's surprise, Argentina, Brazil, um, you know, uh, Trinidad and Tobago, we have an enormous amount of energy. And in fact, much to people's surprise, as we showed in that piece, the Western Hemisphere today already outproduces the Middle East in the conventional measure of of, uh, oil production. And um, they could do even more if they got their political act together. Imagine if the current conflict between Venezuela and Guyana was used by a team of wise diplomats 
in the US and Canada and so on, to find a way to uh, not only achieve peace in that conflict, which stretches back apparently more than 120 years, again, much to my surprise, it wasn't on my radar uh, three months ago. Um, and that is used as an opportunity to fix Venezuela's situation and to, to co-create an enormous amount of value in Guyana and share it equitably. That could happen. That's just politics. That's the first wedge of our response to peach cheap oil. Um, Brazil is producing at a record amounts. Um, you know, the, the, there's no shortage of. I mean, the Western Hemisphere. The reason why all of the old empires were so desperate to get over here is because there's an enormous amount of reserves here. Just look at the U.S. I mean, we're producing because of the shale revolution. The U.S. has added the equivalent of two and a half Saudi Arabia's across its oil. Um, light liquids and, and natural gas production in just in the past 15 years. It's a staggering amount. By the way, in our view, explains why we don't have a recession here. Countries that are awash in cheap hydrocarbons, that are running large fiscal deficits, that have accommodative central banks, don't go into recession. It just doesn't happen. Um, and so, you know, uh, it, it will take time for, for people to see this, but, you know, that this is this is our view. So that really ties it into the economic outlook as well. Is this being a wash in cheap hydrocarbons? Is that the ultimate shield from recession and the printing that we've seen? Yeah, look, it it certainly doesn't hurt, right? If look, the U.S. has, unlike other petrostates, the U.S. has a pretty sophisticated downstream suite of manufacturing supply chains. We make an enormous amount of chemicals. We make an enormous amount of fertilizer. We make all manner of widgets and gadgets, and you know we have um, plastics converters and injecting molar machines, and you know we we make steel. We, we we do things still. Now, look, if you go about the Rust Belt or you go to Gary, Indiana, or you know the the bad parts of Pittsburgh, you can see, or, or in Mid Michigan, where you know the oil industry has sort of um, come and gone in certain cities. You you see destitute. You see, you know the the Rust Belt got a name, the Rust Belt for a reason. But still, here we have plenty of manufacturing. And if you plug in two and a half Saudi Arabia's incremental to what a country was producing before, just look at natural gas. It's trading for a buck 60 today. That's the energy equivalent of $11 oil. And we have a hundred plus BCF per day of production, most of which is trapped here. Like it's, I don't understand how people who believe that we're, look, we thought there would be a recession and we thought U.S. oil production in the shale patch would roll over. We were wrong on both of those counts. One of the reasons we wrote the pieces we have written is because when you're wrong as an analyst, the first thing you do is go figure out why and see what you can learn. Now, if you're an advocate, you say the data is manipulated or whatever you want. And there's some data manipulation going on. And I understand why certain data are political. But that's not my base case. My base case is I got that wrong. I better go find out why. And it's easy to connect the dots. We're wrong because the U.S. is producing an enormous amount of cheap hydrocarbons. And we're seeing a manufacturing boom in the U.S. It first showed up in the construction data uh, for the manufacturing sector. And now, with the latest jobs report, it is showing up in manufacturing jobs as these new factories come online. And I think, whatever your political views, um, hoping for a recession in time for the elections is a losing strategy because it's not coming. Like, I hate to break it to you. That's reality. Uh, would I vote for Joe Biden? Absolutely not. Do I think Joe Biden is senile? Absolutely. Are there people on Joe Biden's team 
who understand commodities, it sure seems so, because they're making the right decisions at the right time, while still placating the radical environmentalist group of their political coalition. Um, and so, say what you want, buck sixty natural gas, hundred BCF per day of the stuff. We got more in storage than we know what to do with. That feeds chemicals, fertilizers, cement makers, steel makers. It gives a huge advantage to the U.S. manufacturing sector, which gets the price its products on a national uh, international benchmark. And so, if you're competing with people who are paying LNG prices for natural gas, you have a huge advantage. So, no, we we don't believe there will be a recession. Look, do I think it is a catastrophic blunder to be piling up so much debt? And do I think we're entering into what our good friend Luke Roman would call fiscal dominance? Absolutely, all those things are true. Not going to be a recession by the election. Interesting. Period. So, you know, again, I, I want to just spell that out. Like, if we do see a rollover in energy production domestically, that ends up meaning recession, right? Correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. 100%. This is the part that amazes me. We all know oil at 147 was a catalyst to the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. Whenever energy prices skyrocket, we see a recession. We know that Germany flubbed its energy policy, and now it's experiencing a recession and deindustrialization. If screwing up your energy policy crushes your economy, what does getting it right do for your economy? The U.S. is producing 20 million barrels a day of oil, 100 BCF of natural mm -hmm. gas. It exports more coal than it needs. It's weird to me that we can all believe that getting energy wrong is a catalyst for economic contraction, but embarking on the greatest energy revolution of our time is somehow not a tailwind for the economy. Of course, yeah. it's a tailwind for the economy, especially Absolutely. one that is forward integrated um, with manufacturing. And, and most of this energy is trapped here because of you know our inability to export LNG. We went from um, not being a nothing in the LNG market to the world leader in a decade. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. You know, so it is what it is. And I listen to people all the time, like on podcasts, people I respect, it, the people whose work I enjoy, and they just can't, they're energy blind, as my friend um, Nate Hagens like to say. They, they think energy is just another input, which is why this piece we're publishing in conjunction with this podcast is so important. Mm -hmm. So, Doomer, just to play devil's advocate here, you, you said a moment ago that there are people in the Biden cabinet that absolutely understand commodities and energy. So how do you view the release of the SPR and needing to refill it at higher prices from you know, a domestic standpoint? And does that end up providing more upward pressure on the price going forward as they they're need not, to refill it? They're not going to refill it, Tom. People forget, and we forgot. Again, when you're wrong as an analyst, what do you do? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was built as a direct result of the oil embargo that the OPEC nations um, imposed on the West as a consequence of the, of the war in Israel. Back then, leaders of the U.S. believed in peak oil, ironically, and they believed that U.S. production had irreversibly begun its decline. And for decades, it looked like that was correct. Much of the the foolish foreign policy adventures of the U.S. can be traced back to this widespread belief amongst U.S. policymakers that the U.S. needed to secure foreign supplies of energy with military might because it had run out of its own. That's not the case anymore. We're a net exporter of energy. How big of a strategic petroleum reserve do we need when we're producing as much as we need? 
we have more refining capacity than we can utilize domestically, much like the Chinese, which is why we're a net exporter of products like diesel. Um, and so I think, well, whatever you think of Biden, and believe me, uh, we're no fans. Um, it was a master stroke. It worked. You got to tip your hat. It put a cap on oil prices. It continued to pressure the market down ahead of the midterm elections. Whatever you think of the sanctity of U.S. elections, the Democrats uh, outperformed. And um, heading into the 24 elections, you know, this move to signal to the market that future LNG export exp uh, approvals um, might not be forthcoming has has added a, a bearish sentiment to the market just in time for, you know, uh, uh, for prices to crater. And uh, look, several of our subscribers pointed out that, the, you know, the, the, the weather explains at least as much of the collapsing price of natural gas as sentiment does. And, and we, we uh, concur to that critique. But whatever you want to say, natural gas is a buck sixty today. We're swimming in it. We're swimming in NGLs. We're swimming in ice sweet crude. We got all the coal we need. The economy is going to be strong, mm -hmm. stronger than it would be if those things weren't true. That's the pieces as they play on the board. You could get angry at that. You could be upset about that. You could accuse the government of fabricating GDP numbers or fabricating job reports, which people twist themselves into enormous pretzels to do. And that's fine. There's a market for that. People want to consume such content. We don't believe it's reality, and we prefer to just write about what we think reality is. Again, you're you're dealing with the world that you have rather than the world that you want. The difference between an ideologue and a partisan, the difference between an analyst and an advocate, is how they deal with data that they're unhappy to read. Mm -hmm. Duberg, if we adjust the price of oil for inflation, we see it really staying, as you said, somewhere stable in this band, let's say, between what would be a fair band to really describe it as? I think in today's dollars, it would be somewhere between um, 50 and $75 a barrel. Mm -hmm. and yeah, I, think, I was, I was going to say uh, 60 and 80. So Yeah, in, in that range. Mm -hmm. you know, um, And that's because the incremental suppliers, such as gas to liquid plants and um, difficult to extract you know, um, like any cost curve, that's about where the marginal supplier sits today at, let's say, $40 a barrel, and they need to earn their cost of capital with a reasonable return to their investors in order to maintain a certain amount of capital deployment. Um, that's where we would peg the price of oil today. Mm -hmm. But it's much better to look at the long-term price of oil in ounces of gold, because then you can correct for currencies. Um, and so um, that that's the, the view that we have. And, and by that measure, um, oil is actually a little too cheap today and might explain why there's not all that much capital going into the industry. Mm -hmm. Well, that was exactly where I wanted to go with understanding, looking at this inflation adjusted chart. You know, if inflation ticks up meaningfully higher with the price of oil and we maintain that ratio, does that end up really not painting an accurate picture of the detrimental effects on the economy? Yeah, because when you're looking at the price of oil in dollars, you're looking at both the price of oil and the price of dollars. Mm -hmm. And so we're of the view that gold is the true store of value and that gold um, has a thousand years of resistance to debasement. I mean, the phrase debasement you know, arises from, you know, from gold, right? I mean, you debase the metal, you know, you, and so on. And so um, our fiat currencies aren't real. And again, as I mentioned earlier, if if you believe that government inflation statistics are massage, and we would 
probably be in that camp. The inflation adjusted price of oil is radically overstating the price of oil. So this is why we prefer to, to view it um, in ounces of gold, which is another chart we'll send you and, and you could share. Um, I think the price of gold at $2,000 an ounce, when it used to be that you know gold was fixed in the 30s, tells you what's happened to the dollar in between. And despite what's happened to the dollar in between, you can still get gasoline for three bucks a gallon and you could buy a million BTUs of natural gas for the price of a medium fry at McDonald's. Yeah, it's amazing. The productive capacity of both of those energy sources and how cheap they have become really is absolutely amazing because you have no idea how much those energy sources mean until you don't have. Correct. And yet we have this cadre of people who believe that just around the corner, is the peak oil boogeyman. Now, let me ask you this question. What evidence would they need to concede that we haven't already provided today? Like, seriously, like, if we can't take a buck 60 natural gas and build some gas to liquid plants and make a profit, if peak cheap oil is a thing, that we got, <laughs> I mean, of course we could. And we would. The harder you pull the rubber band, the more violent it snaps back. Always. And forever, because the human endeavor is a constant, unrelenting struggle against the forces of entropy. And you need to burn energy. You need to waste heat in order to beat back that force. And we will do it. We always have, and we always will, mm -hmm. absent some nuclear catastrophe where, or a meteorite, a meteor strikes the earth and you know, we're all wiped out, or some volcano in, in uh, the, you know, the, the U.S. Um, uh, West uh, explodes um, like it does every million years or so, and apparently we're due for one. I mean, all those things, of course, um, are, are assumed to, to not occur over the time frame of this particular analysis. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the other interesting points that I heard you make as I was doing research for today was that if we were really facing this shortage, that the market would be sniffing that out and pricing oil a hell of a lot higher than it is at this point. I mean, if you just look at the future curve of oil and natural gas, I mean, there's nothing indicating those things. And and the people who analyze these markets and the governments who analyze these markets are pretty sophisticated. Mm -hmm. This is, a, I think, a key point. Like, um, having spent so much time in industry, having met CEOs of major companies that you would know, and having on my Rolodex of friends, chief technology officers of a variety of Fortune 100 companies who quietly cheer on Doomberg because they can't say these things. And that's one of the big market inefficiencies that we're occupying. If they could see the technical power of Saudi Arabia and, and um, Saudi Aramco in particular, the national oil company, uh, if they could see the army of, of brilliant workers at an ExxonMobil or Chevron, um, if they could travel to Chinese universities, as I have done, or visit IIT in India, as I have done, um, or understand how having, at least used to be, having Moscow State University on your resume, in our view, automatically made, meant that you were a genius. Like, the world is filled with geniuses. Mm -hmm. but this is, there's no monopoly on genius. And as the internet proliferated, as AI proliferates, as open source education proliferates, we're going to, we're going to see uh, ever more um, human brain power being brought to the market in ways that matter. Um, and so if they could see those things, 
they would understand the profit motive of a true crisis in oil would very quickly snapshot and violently so. There's a couple more technology questions that I'd like to ask you here. What gap do you think ethanol can fill in that equation if we do face a shortage? And is that ultimately an efficient way of producing that energy? You know, ethanol is a very political topic in the U.S. We believe that we wouldn't have as much ethanol being produced as a fuel if it weren't for the fact that there's two senators from every state. But the production of ethanol is material. It finds its way into a refinery, and therefore, in our view, ethanol is oil. Um, it could be done. I don't think it's ethically the correct thing to do. We wrote a controversial piece many moons ago about how, in reality, we believe the proliferation of ethanol in gasoline mixes has more to do about covering up the, um, you know, the the the, the leaded uh, additives that were put into fuels um, as anti-knock. Uh, you know, there's some very big name companies, including one from the state of the current president, uh, DuPont, uh, and General Motors and so on were involved in this, what we believe is one of the great environmental scandals of all time. And to make that scandal go away, everybody kind of winked and smiled and said, we'll just blend five and 10 and 15% of ethanol into our gasoline, because this basically serves as, as, as a replacement for the lead additives. Um, and so that's the deal. And that's why we have a bunch of ethanol. It's, a, it's an off the beaten path view. It's it's pretty niche. We got some pushback on that view. I think it's right. Um, but regardless um, of the options available to us, yes, we could take more and more of our corn and convert it into ethanol. But that again removes food, you know, from the supply chain at least partially. You know, the the byproducts of a, a corn production do find their way into various um, uh, agriculture and industries as well, and you know, and so on. But by and large, uh, we think um, using food for fuel is a dubious thing to do with a precious commodity. But among the things we would do, yeah, a lot of people would starve and we would uh, convert more of our agricultural crops to make the fuel that the rest of us uh, gleefully burn as we drive to the mall. Mm -hmm. And how about hydrogen production? You know, producing enough hydrogen and converting this whole supply chain or delivery chain for vehicles to be able to run on hydrogen. How do you see the economics of that being able to be a feasible and reliable fuel? Um, hydrogen as an energy carrier has many desirable attributes. It, it burns cleanly, produces only water in its exhaust. It's got a very high a gravimetric energy density. Um, making hydrogen from renewables is is insane and will never happen. Um, making hydrogen from fossil fuels well, is... You should, sorry to interrupt, you should put the asterisk, will never happen without subsidies. Uh, but it won't. I mean, there's only so much subsidies that we can waste and we would exhaust them before it became meaningful. Exactly. Um, converting hydrogen from fossil fuels is is makes more sense. And it's done on a massive scale today for a variety of reasons, um, but has nothing to do with its use as a, as a fuel. It, it's a precursor to both uh, the production of, of ammonia, which is critical for, for fertilizers, and it's used in refining the various um, Chemical pathways we described before sometimes require um, pure hydrogen in order to accomplish such chemical transformations. And so we make an enormous amount for that purpose as well. Um, making it from nuclear makes perfect sense to us. Um, but then we wrote this piece um, in February because it was a surprise to us. But there's a, a potential breakthrough that uh, there may exist significant amounts of natural hydrogen, which we would drill for in the same way that we do for natural gas. And if that's true, that could be a game changer. We have this you know, relatively notorious five-question framework that we use to assess such claims of technological breakthroughs that go viral in the news. And we, and we wrote 
natural hydrogen something or nothing and applied that framework. And we, we left that analysis more optimistic about this possibility than we were before. And, and if that's true, that could be a game changer. And it would circumvent the need to build wind turbines and solar panels or even nuclear power plants uh, in order to produce hydrogen. And, and if we could do it at a big enough scale in a way that was economically feasible, we would certainly do it. It would be yet another wedge in our war against peak cheap oil. Um, do we think it'll happen? Probably not. But we were certainly surprised at at the possibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting to look at all of these different possibilities almost from different viewpoints in time. With the advent of these technological breakthroughs, this makes some of these new fuels, if, if that's what you want to call them, or just any of these new breakthroughs, it completely changes and turns them on their head from the way that we were previously looking at them, right? And I think yeah. that's that's the important thing to take from this conversation as well. Yeah, look, Adam Rosenzweig said, and I agreed that, you know, in the late 2000s with oil at 150, nobody would have been able to predict that fracking and horizontal drilling would be this amazing miracle that we would add two and a half Saudi Arabia's in 15 years. Nobody had that on their radar. Nobody can say today, not me, not you, not anybody listening, what the next shale will be, could be natural hydrogen, who knows? Um, But it'll arrive because it always does, it always has. And so in our view, this is the ultimate trend that uh, we would uh, advise uh, not to short. So Doomer, with all of the attention that this article got, what were some of the best criticisms of your work that you came across or things that you learned as a byproduct of being exposed to these ideas? Um, at the, I'm trying to phrase this carefully. Um, we have not seen meaningful critiques that incorporate what we actually wrote and what we've actually said. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a phrase around the chicken coop, which is we are happy, happy to defend what we wrote, not what you think you read. And so um, we wrote our piece with careful caveats, um, and we always try to do so. We showed our homework, and we've not seen a meaningful critique that makes us change our mind. There are lots of critiques where we feel like perhaps we could have done a better job of explaining mm-hmm. what we were trying to say, but our pieces have a certain target length, and you know every one of them can't be an encyclopedia, which is why we've written several follow-ups, and now we're going to publish a sort of summary of them all. The one thing we've learned that was interesting, that gave us some pause that we have not yet written about, but we probably will. It came about during our discussion with Adam Rosenzweig, again, of Gehring and Rosenzweig. We read all their stuff. They're wonderful people. They're great energy analysts. We happen to disagree on this topic, and it doesn't mean we're not friends and that we can't have an intelligent discussion about it. Mm-hmm. He, they made a call in November that um, U.S. natural gas production was set to roll over. Um, and that as a consequence of that, the Henry Hub price of natural gas would triple or quadruple from where it was. Unfortunately, that call has not worked out um, economically because the convergence that they um, had predicted did indeed occur. But instead of U.S. prices rising, LNG prices collapsed. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we're not in the business of making market calls. They are. And we're the last person to, to critique somebody who uh, maybe gets a call uh, not quite right. Um, but. The fundamental point that he made, which is that the, the Marcellus uh, shale uh, natural gas production um, might soon turn over, um, was an important insight. 
one that we're still studying. We have some some disagreements with some of the axioms of that analysis, but but it's still an interesting one. And if that were to happen, that would be a meaningful short-term crisis to the U.S. Just as we are plugging more and more of our machines into natural gas, which is what we wrote in a piece called "Compressed for Time." We have chemical plants, power plants, all manner of manufacturing companies being built and constructed to enjoy a glut of natural gas. And if the Marcellus declines at the rate that the Gehring and Rosenzweig team thinks that it might decline, then that would be a real crisis. Mm-hmm. That would be a real change, an inflection point, as our friend Copy might say, and one that we're on the lookout for. And then there's a few ways to test that. I think when the Mountain Valley Pipeline finally gets commissioned, we'll see whether production in uh, the Marcellus is indeed limited by offtake capacity, which is what the industry standard view is, or whether the Goring and Rosenzweig team are right in that it's it's about to be limited by geology. Now, we would say a $1.60 natural gas kind of muddies that experiment because that's not exactly a price level at which new capital is going to be deployed. And so it mm-hmm. might roll over for reasons that derive from economics and not geology. But um, it was an interesting hypothesis, one that we do not dismiss and one that we take seriously and one that we're investigating, which is, I think, the way serious content creators and analysts should always behave. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Excellent, Doomberg. Well, I think we've really covered the gambit here today on really trying to understand this topic a little bit more. And I really want to thank you for having this discussion. I think it helps, you know, flesh out more of your ideas and explain them a little bit better to those that maybe misinterpreted some of what you were what you were saying. And I really appreciate being able to pick your brain and convey these ideas to our audience as well. And Tom, look, you're a true professional. Anytime that you reach out to us, you know, the first thing we do is drop everything and schedule time to talk to you because it's one Absolutely. of the, it's one of the best experiences that, that I personally have. And I do a lot of podcasts, but you're always among the most prepared, um, ask the smartest questions, push back where you feel like you need to. And uh, I really enjoy talking to you. I enjoy the feedback we get from your audience. And so I appreciate every opportunity to be here and looking forward to the next one. Absolutely. Dunberg, me as well. And of course, for anybody that wants to read more of Doomberg, that's available at doomberg.substack.com. Doomberg, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Tom. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.